За окном война, ты спросишь, или тяжело? Отвечу, ну да. А ты как-то держись, моя любимая страна. Мы обязательно встретимся возле большого костра. Слово Украине, слово They're ordinary people that didn't ask to go through this, but they're stepping up in a major way. Non-stop amazing patriotism and rallying to take care of each other. You see here in Ukraine, it's unbelievable. The rise of autocracy is, is the end of us. It's the end of us all over again. These are all the conditions that created World War II. They already changed forever. They are kids of war. They will remember for the end of their life. Only the people who went through this occupation will understand the feeling. No electricity, no water, no food, no money, but the main thing, no Russian. <laughs> We don't care all the rest as soon as there's no Russian. You're listening to JD Off Leash inside Ukraine. You were one of the first ones to jump on a plane and get over here to help Ukraine. We'll get into kind of the backstory um, on some of your personal attachments to Ukraine. But first, was it the first week in March that you came over? Yeah, we arrived in March 2nd, I okay. think, for the first time. All right. And I'm curious. When you first came in, I know I didn't come over until like the beginning of May and I came over with completely unrealistic expectations of what it was going to be like crossing the border into Ukraine. I'm curious when you came over beginning of March versus what you know now of Lviv and Kiev and what's going on in the country. Uh, what was it like when you first came in in the beginning of March as far as expectations of what you would encounter versus reality? We, uh, so there were six of us it was me my wife uh a, a good buddy of mine from college adam sue um mac um william bishop uh who was working on a piece for um rolling stone um matt gallagher and ben bush and we rolled over the border in a bus and the bus was on a route and the bus picked up people like ukrainians who were going home Um, and it arrived in Lviv at like 4am and though I think we left from Krakow. So, okay. And it was just like, you know, uh, it, it wasn't super long getting into Ukraine. It wasn't, you know, maybe it was two or three hours, but then passing the border, you know, there was a huge line of people. The line was like three or four kilometers coming long. in or going out or both leaving Ukraine. Right. Okay. Yeah. Buses, right, right. people on foot, um, a lot of women and children. Um, it was still that period of time real sad and then i guess the cold water in my face was i came in similar middle of the night is when i arrived to lviv um and laughable now but like the next morning i'm walking out i'm checking windows while i'm walking looking for reflections like i think i'm in the war i didn't bring any civilian clothes i assumed all the women and children were out of the country it was just fighting aged males and the whole country's in turmoil um and then as everybody woke up 
the city will be filled with people, restaurants open, cafes open by evening. There was live music in the streets and it was one of the most beautiful tourist experiences you could experience had I been there for tourism. Um, but that probably wasn't quite on that level when you came over because it was still very fresh or was it? No, I think Lviv was, it was, it was definitely chaotic and people were still responding to air raids, um, mm. with alacrity. So an air raid siren would, would sound and people would start like moving out of the streets pretty quickly. Not like now where an air raid siren goes yeah. off and people just kind of like take another sip of coffee, right? Go, yeah, go yeah. do what they were going to do. Right. Um, but it was, it was, I think, um, first time I went to Lviv was in 2015 and it's a city of, I want to say the city was like 800,000, the population or something like that. And I was hearing anecdotal reports that, you know, by March, this, the population had swelled with refugees and internally dis displaced persons to something like 3 million. Um, so it was definitely like a the big feeling jump. in March was like, it was jammed. Yeah. And then of course, like I said, by the time I got there in May, you were still seeing the increased population, but it was almost like a uh, I won't say a party, but it was, you know, people that were displaced from the East. This is kind of their new home and it's exciting and it's safe fish at the time. So um, I was just curious when you came over in March, it was kind of the same experience. And now you've mentioned your wife coming with you, which I'm sure most people are going to be like, why would you bring your wife to a war zone? And you've mentioned having been here in 2015. So let's get a little personal uh, backstory. Obviously, you've been to Ukraine before. And why would you bring your wife? Which I already know the answer, but let's go over that whole story. How'd you meet? What, uh, what went down there? So I met my wife in January of 2016. I went on her radio program. She's a Ukrainian journalist. So she's from here. And um, we married in September of 2016, um, sort of legally. And legally, the civil marriage still has some kind of emotional resonance here because that's the only kind of marriage you could do in the USSR. Mm -hmm. So you go down to like the the courthouse and you, uh, there's like a disco ball and like a dance room and stuff. And it's like a one-stop shop for getting married without God as one <laughs> did in the USSR. Right. Um, and then we had our, our religious wedding in June of 2017. Uh, family came out, a bunch of friends came out for that. Did you meet here or in the States? We met here. Okay. And what um, brought you here with that time? So I wanted to cover the conflict in 2015 when I first showed up. And, uh, and so I just kept coming back. I, I, I sort of, you know, was really interested in the place, as, as you know. The place has yeah. a kind of magnetism. If you're interested in democracy and, and what goes into building a nation, a democratic nation, mm -hmm. uh, the people are just really obsessed with a lot of the things that, that speak to me personally. Democracy, freedom, liberty, things that are kind of like cliches in America. But here, you know, they're it's real. It's the lifeblood. Yeah. 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 And so you came over for that in 2015, met her through um, her journalism, right. and then you guys got married and went back to the States. Is that correct? So we moved back to the States in 2018. Okay. And, um, and then when the war, you know, we, we were coming back, uh, you know, once or twice a year. Sometimes she'd pop back over here. Her, most of her friends are here. Her parents are here. Her brother's here. Um, and so, she, you know, we'd pop back over here at least once a year, sometimes twice. Sometimes she'd pop over just for a few days to see friends and family. It, it wasn't expensive or even particularly difficult. You could fly in before the, the, before the skies closed during the invasion. Right. You could catch a connecting flight in Amsterdam or uh, Paris, Charles, Charles de Gaulle, and be um, more or less direct, direct or one stop um, to Boris Ball 
and then Borspol's a 45 minute, you know, cab ride from, from right. downtown Kiev. So it was real easy to get here. Yeah. And so then that brings us to the Adrian that I know. And like I was just saying, I felt like I've known you for much longer than we have. It's amazing to me that we hadn't met prior to this um, because through a mutual contact, uh, my interest in trying to get over here and helping Ukraine um, put us in video calls together. Before I even came over here, basically as you were headed back to the United States from what you were doing, I was coming over here. Um, and basically you were presented to me as this guy knows more about Ukraine and Eastern Europe than anybody you'll ever meet in your life. Um, so I really hope to dive a little bit into, uh, into your knowledge of that. Because as we were talking about earlier before we started this, um, I think one of the things that is probably the least um, understood in the West is the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian culture. And I don't necessarily mean that in a the, what they wear way, but as a what makes them tick um, way. And when people are trying to evaluate this invasion and they're trying to evaluate the Ukrainian response and what's going to happen or why is this happening, they're not taking into account what I think, and I think you share this view, is the largest factor um, in the Ukrainian response. And that is the people and the soul of the people and the heart of the people. Um, so yeah, I hope we can dig into that. And to do that, as we talked earlier, again, uh, we were talking a little bit about the Soviet era, kind of what these people have been through, where they came from, why they're, why they're wired the way that they are. Um, and so I want to tap a little bit into your expertise in the history of Ukraine. Obviously, we can go way back with it changing hands and where it's been, but I would say post-USSR. So 1991, and if you think it's val valuable to go back a little further, we certainly can. Give me whatever you got. But, you know, 1991, the Baltic states are the first to officially leave the USSR. Um, it's essentially a people-led movement, right? This was people in, in these nations within the USSR that said, hey, we want to we be a nation. We want to be nationalists. We want to do our own thing, right? Yeah. You know, one of the great enduring lies that you'll run into from Russia or from Russian propagandists on the far right or the far left um, is that somehow all of this is some kind of like NATO conspiracy or U.S. like, you know, this attempt to break up Russia or to to destroy, um, you know, Russia or the USSR. And when you know a little bit about how diplomats and the national security apparatus functions, and you know a little bit about the history, you realize that it's the exact opposite. Like George H.W. Bush was, you know, famously had this, uh, what was called the chicken Kiev moment, where he was essentially advocating for Ukraine to stay part of Russia because he didn't want to ruffle Russian feathers. Right. He, wanted, he wanted it to stay together because when you have one individual with whom to negotiate, when you have one administration, that makes foreign policy super easy. Mm -hmm. It's the same reason the US does not want Russia to fall apart. They want Putin to stay in charge because rather than one crazy guy with nukes, you don't want 20 crazy guys with nukes. It makes everything much more complicated yeah. and difficult to, 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 to keep a hold of. So there wasn't a lot of energy um, like pushing for the self-determination of peoples from America, the institution, America, the national security like bubble. There was a lot of very reasonable and understandable empathy on the part of American people for German people, Latvian people, Estonian people, Ukrainian people, because it's natural to us. They, we've got our country, they want their country, mm -hmm. that's obvious. But the country, it's the America, the United States, was not interested in this proliferation of 
weird new countries with new cultures. Now we're going to have to stand up embassies there. Uh, so to your point, it really was a, a people-driven movement. And all of these national movements here uh, in Eastern Europe and, and, and Northern Europe, and probably to a certain extent within Russia today, truly are people-driven. They're popular movements. Mm -hmm. And I'll come right back to that timeline, but you bring up a point that I think is going to be applicable. Um, you mentioned you don't want multiple countries with nukes. Uh, I believe the treaty was signed at the time that if Ukraine was going to be a nation that essentially the treaty was they would give up their nuclear program and in return Russia would respect the borders that were driven into the ground on the day that the USSR dissolved and would not threaten with military force any of the territorial boundaries of Ukraine. And that was what was in exchange for the nuclear program. That took place, correct? So that's called the Budapest Memorandum, and it falls somewhat short of a treaty, but it's one of those things where people who, either it means something or it means nothing. And the people who want it to mean nothing have to reckon with the fact that it clearly meant something or the Ukrainians would not have given up their nukes right. for nothing. So right. if it's not a treaty, if it's not like alliance, a lot of people get hung up on the semantics of this and forget about the, the spirit of that moment, which was- What it meant. Yeah, yeah. which was clearly uh, uh, one of the, the, the all-time historically great and unfortunately now probably tragically pointless uh, gestures of faith on the part of the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. And, and we betrayed that faith in 2014 when, uh, when we did nothing while Russia seized Crimea and, and then uh, and pieces of the East. Um, but to kind of get back to the timeline, I just wanted to bring that up because you mentioned the whole you don't want multiple countries with uh, nuclear. And I think that's a kind of a key thing is to remember that at that moment, there was not just Russia stating that they would not uh, disrespect the boundaries, but a huge price was paid in good faith. Um, for that compromise, or I guess for that that agreement. Um, yeah, so back to talking about people-led movement, USSR dissolves. Here's another thing that I think a lot of, as you mentioned, far left, far right, that don't seem to get a, gra a grip on what really went down and why and what the motivating force was, um, is they look at the way Ukraine had a relationship with Russia afterwards, and then we'll get into talking about the Orange Revolution in 2014 and all those things. I think it's important for people to understand the style of governing that the USSR is, uh, what that Soviet mindset is. Uh, you want your kid to have a nicer classroom, you have to give somebody money. You want uh, to drive a nicer car, you have to give somebody money. You have to, everything was, was kind of a wheeled power. Um, if you want to be in a better position in any part of your life, uh, you have to please the people that have the power and hold the keys to that gate. Um, and then you climb your way up until you're that guy that everybody has to do favors for. So that was kind of the Soviet mindset. So even though these countries split and they go to nationalist republics and they have democracy, I'll use air quotes for a couple of those countries when I say democracy, um, that doesn't change overnight. You may be an elected official, but that's the way you know to govern. That's how the Soviet Union was governed for decades, if not longer. Um, so I think that's also important to remember. And I think that it plays a key role in why we're seeing what we see today as far as Russia's response to thriving democracy in Ukraine. Um, so do you have anything that you want to mention that I didn't just mention as far as the Soviet governing style uh, that would be relevant? I would add 
two things. The first thing is that when you see the USSR in the context of the government that preceded it, the Tsarist government, Imperial Russia, and you understand how important this sort of centralized bureaucracy was to Russia and how corrupt it was. It was very much a culture and a country of personal connections in the context of an aristocracy. Like Nothing got done outside of that framework. And there were very powerful mafias within it. Um, one of the, the sort of most entertaining accounts of how a specifically a city was run partly or largely by a mafia, which is endured to this day, um, is, uh, is conveyed in Isaac Babel's Red Cavalry, the first part of which details uh, a pogrom in Odessa against the Jewish community there. And he talks about how the Jewish community had this very powerful Jewish mafia. Um, and they were, you know, they ran a, a, a big chunk of the city's uh, 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 economic life. Um, and there was this crackdown in 1905. It was a very it was like a horrible, horrible pogrom. Um, and, uh, and actually, a lot of uh, American um, uh, Jewish refugees, uh, a lot of Americans emigrated, or, or, or Russians slash Jewish people slash Ukrainians, emigrated from Odessa to America in, in 1905. Um, but it's, uh, it, the crime was how things got done. Um, corruption was how things got done. And when you see that, when you see that happening pre-USSR, then the things, the way things happen in the USSR makes a lot more sense. There's this idea of the USSR as like an ideological, like, oh, it's communist, it's a Soviet country. Mostly it was just a really corrupt country. And that fact is like very important for people to know because that is the thing that was animating people in 2004 and 2014 in Ukraine a bunch of other countries as well at different times to get away from that model. They're just really sick of living in a country that is defined first and foremost by centralized bureaucracy and corruption. And you got to know somebody and you got to know what bribe to give them to get anything done. Mm -hmm. right. um, and to jump back, if, if I can, you mentioned Crimea. So we'll go there because that's almost kind of the next thing in the timeline. So Crimea decides, and you might be able to clear some of this up for me, but create a, Crimea, excuse me, decides after the USSR has um, dissolved that they want to, in some fashion, be their own republic, even though it is under Ukrainian control and, and it's undisputed that it belongs to Ukraine. Uh, Crimea does kind of an autonomous thing, uh, but then they actually end up electing a president and Ukraine kind of says, well, you can have a president of your autonomy, but he still falls under us. Um, and yet he is this pinnacle of Soviet control where he wants to basically be the dictator of Crimea in Soviet fashion. Uh, their own parliament don't like him, so they drop him down to you know executive powers only. Uh, so he turns around and dissolves parliament and then tries to basically get away from Ukraine altogether, and that's when Ukraine finally says, okay, enough, we're sending troops in and we're taking Ukraine back. Does that depict kind of what happened between 91 and 94 accurately. That's my general understanding of it, um, of Crimea and sort of when it was defined as being, okay, the autonomy is kind of going to go away some. It's part of Ukraine. I, I, I'm not familiar with okay. that, that part of it. I, the only thing that I really know about Crimea um, 
overall, apart from the history of it, um, the, the, the deep history of it is, and, and it's, it's, role as a contested part of Ukraine is that there's a large and strategically significant Russian base there, Sevastopol, like it's the, the home of the Black Fleet, I think. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, the, the, the Black Sea Fleet. And, um, and there is, Russia has always been much more interested in Crimea and either Crimean autonomy or Crimean subjugation or mm -hmm. annexation or whatever than any other part of Ukraine for that reason for geographical value being being a good a port for them to keep the black sea fleet and so that's another interesting thing too i mean we could nerd out over history forever um but i think it's important to remember too that that is not only a soviet style move that is a russia specific style move and then even more specifically a putin move um is to kind of do this insurgency from within with a location that you want. Um, use propaganda, use mind control, but also use physical insertion of a population. Start putting your people there, give them motivation, give them reason, and start getting to the point where you build up your little majority of pro-Russian or pro-Putin uh, protagonists in a community and then go, well, majority rules. Uh, this these people actually want to be a part of Russia. That's that's been documented. That's that's been done multiple places. Um, he attempted it in Chechnya, he attempted, which obviously we know didn't go too well. Um, but that's kind of a move. That's, that's something he does in Eastern Ukraine and Crimea. That's happened in the West. It's called settler colonialism, but with Russia, it's okay apparently. <laughs> yeah. Well, and 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 it's something that is coming up. It's being talked about. Where you know, I think there's probably most people in the West agree that Russia needs to get back to where it was before February 24th. They don't belong in Ukraine. But I think there's a lot of people. Um, there are definitely some loud-voiced, very influential people in the West uh, who say, yeah, but, you know, Crimea is mostly Russian, so they probably should just keep that with Russia. And, you know, eastern Ukraine, we've heard reports that it's mostly Russian and that that's where they want to be, so it should stay with Russia. And it's important to remember that, A, most pro-Ukrainian people have either fled or been killed. And that's, that's important to remember. Um, not just since this war, since 2014. Um, and then that, as you said, it's been very intentionally and strategically settled uh, with Russians. So just because the numbers today may say one thing, that's not really indicative of the uh, natural population. And then at the end of the day, it's not indicative of... of governing rule and treaties and and where the lines have been drawn you know we had an autonomous uh state in seattle for a little while in the united states too and if you asked the people who were in that autonomous state at the time whether or not they wanted to be in it they would have all said yes but no one in the united states said well i guess we just give up that chunk of seattle because that's what they want you know no it's it belongs to the united states it belongs to the state of washington and it belongs to the city of seattle it's it's, you know, been infiltrated. So the fact that the numbers say the people in there want it that way doesn't change anything. On a much larger scale, similar kind of thing that, you know, it's been defined over and over again that Crimea is part of Ukraine. Um, in fact, was it 2000? I'm going to get the date wrong. When was the, uh, the treaty in which the United States and Britain sat in on where Russia was essentially giving, you know, giving... Uh, Crimea over officially the, I mean wasn't really giving it over because it already belonged but admitting yes the Crimean Peninsula belongs to Ukraine I want to say it was around 2008 maybe 
I might be mixing up dates. Um, that sounds right but, to me. Yeah, I know. Okay. I know there was a moment where they yeah, said, and so it's so it's defined, right? Um, and then, as we said, there's been some not so organic organic ways that it has become so infiltrated with Russians. All right, so we've got the Soviet mindset, um, and as you said, the people of Ukraine decide we want to progress. We want to become a democracy, a true democracy. Um, and then we get to the Orange Revolution. Talk about the Orange Revolution a little bit. Um, yeah, this is the first time that uh, you in, one encounters the character of Viktor Yanukovych. Um, and Yanukovych is seen as a pro-Russian um, politician. And when we say pro-Russian, we're not talking about Russian culture or, or ethno-linguistically or ethnographically. We're talking about uh, that corrupt and criminal way of doing business mm -hmm. and a way that uh, subordinates Ukraine to Russia and makes Ukraine uh, kind of um, almost like a colony, you know, where uh, Russians can go to get uh, cheap uh, goods, very cheap, um, where it can launder money, where it can do business as Russia um, to, to, to wash, uh, you know, wash the money of Gazprom or any of its national industries and clean it before, you know, oligarchs move further west to Paris or Berlin. And do you get the impression, as I do when I read through the way it all went down, that that was pretty much the expectation when the USSR dissolved? Um, it was almost like, you know, leadership in Ukraine and leadership in Russia were like, yeah, we'll dissolve the USSR, but, you know, we're still boys. Cheers, drink some vodka together. And, yeah, we have two different countries on a map, uh, but we're still 100% uh, intertwined and, and we're just an extension of each other. And it's all one big happy family of power because I can get power by working with you and you can get power by working with me. And all the little peons down there at the bottom can call themselves whatever country they want. Sort of a mentality. Um, the original leadership. I think the original leadership very much so on Russia's side. I think even from the get-go, I think from 1991, the Ukrainian leadership saw itself as distinct and yeah. truly wanted its own country um, and felt that it deserved its own country very much in the same way that it felt that um, during World War II and after World War I, when there were two, when there's a Western Republic and an Eastern Republic uh, declared of Ukraine. Um, so it was Yanukovych in the Orange Revolution and then the other two people that... Um, that came to prominence were Yushchenko, Yushchenko and, uh, and Timoshenko. And Yushchenko was the one who um, ended up... Uh, Ultimately ended up winning. He didn't in the original, right. um, which is what caused the revolution, because right. Putin's buddy uh, won the original one, but then there was found to be gross negligence and just downright fraud um, in the election. And so they revolted, and it ended up being Yushchenko put in... Um, much to Putin's dismay. And I bring that up um, because when people ask, well, what, what's this all about? Why is he going in? I think it's important to recognize that at least in his mind, the two were going to just basically still be the same. Nothing's going to change. And then this is kind of the first little kick in the nuts of I rigged it as I'm supposed to. That's what you do. <laughs> and all of a sudden the people can change that. 
Like, who are these people? They're, those, those are the peasants. They're not part of this power structure that we have. And they just changed what I said needs to happen. It's, it's kind of that first little poke. So that's why I think it's, it's important. Um, so then the people's choice ends up winning. But ironically, after that, um, it goes Putin's way ish leading up into 2014 um, yeah well, well so so yushenko also it's important to to remark got was was poisoned and horribly disfigured um and i think you know looking at all parts of ukrainian society government civil society uh which was very new probably was born in 2004 in a lot of ways um in the military because the military is a part of society too in a democratic country um you know 2004 was when people, like you were saying, it was that first moment where, where not just Putin probably thought like, hey, what's going on here? But the people understood that they actually had some power mm -hmm. to affect change. And, um, and they were disappointed by the lack of change and the lack of progress. And Yanukovych, Putin's ally, to his credit with the Party of Regions, was able to figure out, figure out how to legally become elected and moderated his stance. So he was, um, you know, in 2008, I think he was elected in 2008 for the first time. Um, he began, he was saying things like, I want to have a closer relationship with Europe economically. I want to do reforms to make the system less corrupt when he was reelected and failed to deliver on any promises. And then when there was this in 2013, you know, there was this um, treaty on the table. The straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. He didn't, yeah, he, he continued to do nothing. People said, okay, well, you have, you've lost your mandate. We don't want you. And then he cracked down and, and you know, people were uh, understandably upset by the violence and the chaos and the murdering and the, murder of journalists and said okay you know enough is enough and and the offer was on the table like it was going to happen they were going to join the eu am i correct there i mean i believe that it was a signature away um and i could be wrong so correct me if i, I am but i don't think it was joining the eu but i think it was one of those sort of intermediate steps and it was absolutely like taking a step toward okay. more um accountability like the the, the key the key for Putin probably here isn't even like responsiveness to the people. I think he cares less about the people being able to like have a vote or have a, a have a say than like Europeans being able to check every lading document, every every you know piece of of you know every piece of paper that tracks an economic transaction and say, hey, where's this money coming from? Mm -hmm. That's like, that's what being part of the EU really means. And that's what was at stake in 2013. The um, death of corruption being the rule of thumb. Right. Yeah. Um, and so 2014, for anyone who's listening that doesn't know, um, is probably the biggest revolution in modern times in, in uh, Ukraine. It is the biggest revolution. Um, he fails to sign and the whole country was kind of on bated breath this is it. We're moving towards uh, at least a strong relationship with the EU um, and a deviation from corruption. And then he fails to sign. And so they basically take over the city of Kiev, uh, Maiden Square or Madan Square, 
uh, over a million people, which is something I can't wrap my brain around. I've been there. Uh, I can't even imagine fitting that many people there. And they camped there for three months. Uh, and it was actually some significant numbers of people were killed um, during this revolution. So it was, it was a big deal. And the reason that I emphasize that is I want to underscore how much this meant to the Ukrainian people. Um, again, very symbolic in both the eyes of East and in the eyes of Ukraine. This was, this was the people saying, no, we are going in this direction. We have worked hard to become a technologically advanced, economic thriving, good-hearted people that want to have a country to be proud of. We're not letting this corrupt Soviet era mindset continue to hold us back. So we don't care what you do. We're taking our city, we're taking our country, and this is where we're going. And I think that that is important to keep in mind when we get to where we are today and A, what's happening, and B, what the Ukrainian response has been. And then also to understand the other side of it. Um, Putin is operating, and it's not just Putin, but the powers that be in Russia are operating on the Soviet power scheme that has gotten them incredibly wealthy. It's fulfilled whatever personal uh, ambitions they had. It allows them to be where they are in life, and that all hinges on this not happening in Russia. It all hinges on everyone complying with the system and continuing to do what they're supposed to do. Um, so to have the neighbor, the big neighbor, Ukraine, and the one that was supposed to be most intricately woven in with your system, uh, on the fritz of not only breaking away, but going to a democracy-driven life, not just on paper, but an actual democracy-driven country, is an enormous threat. Um, and he responded. That's when he sent in troops to Crimea and Luhansk and Donetsk. And, and took these and took these regions both by settlement and by force. Um, and so anything else that you want to bring up about that 2014, because I know that one is probably three podcast episodes in and of yeah. itself. Yeah, so I think the, the, the first thing to say about that time period is February 2014. Um, you know, the Ukrainian people are saying, we're done with Yanukovych. We want, we want a closer relationship with Europe. We want less corruption. If you look at like the number of people in 2014 who are interested in joining NATO or interested in who, who didn't like Russia, who, who, who liked Europe and were just like very pro-European, probably like 20 or 30%. Most of the country wasn't interested in joining NATO. Most of it. Most of the country was either passively or actively pro-Russian, pro-Russian relations. They didn't see themselves. Ukraine didn't think to themselves, it's an either or. This is a binary. Either we have Yanukovych and Russia, or we don't have Yanukovych and Russia as our enemy. Nobody, I don't even know if the, the rebellion would have been as large, uh, not rebellion, the, the, the revolution, revolution. Yeah. would have been as large as it was if, 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 if that was understood to be the case, um, I think that came as a surprise to a lot of people. And when Putin, so that's the first thing. It's also important for people to understand that Putin annexed, invaded and annexed Crimea, February, March of 2014, mm -hmm. 
without Russian soldiers. It wasn't the Russian military. It was people that didn't have flags on. It was non-uniformed people. It was, and, and that was, it was what they called at the time little green men. That was because he expected the United States to respond or Europe to respond. And he wanted to be able to say, those weren't the people, that's not my people. That was just like, oh, well, you know, I'm gonna complain some more about America and NATO and blah, 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 this. But he wanted plausible deniability because he wasn't ready to face down with the US and NATO. And he didn't, he, I assume at that point, he was looking at the Budapest memorandum. Yeah, he didn't have a leg to stand on. It he was, didn't have a leg yeah. to stand on. Yeah. So, but that didn't happen. And in fact, as I was saying earlier about national security establishments, the people who had all of the power and authority in Europe and in the United States did not want Ukraine to do anything about Crimea. And Ukraine was not just counseled, but people were begging, do not fight back against this. We'll figure it out diplomatically. Don't worry. We respect your sovereignty. We will never recognize that Russia has taken this territory, but there's a diplomatic solution to this. And I think this is one of the most, one of the greatest misjudgments of the 21st century. Do you think that came more out of a calculated concern or apathy? I think it came much more out of apathy because it's impossible to calculate when you don't have any variables. You know, we knew very little about Ukraine, nor did we care about Ukraine. Like we knew a fair bit about Russia and cared a great deal about Russia at that time because up until very recently, up until this year, they were a huge trading partner for us not just in terms of volume of trade, but in terms of the importance of the mm. goods that we got from Russia. We got a strategically significant amount of titanium, rare earths and rare metals from Russia, really up until this year. And people who think like we were conspiring to chisel Ukraine away because we <laughs> like their democracy, right. like either you believe America is a cynical, capitalistic, like hungry nation, yeah. Or you don't. And if you do, then what's our, like, yeah. what's, what do we gain by yeah. alienating Russia? Nothing. Right. So, so that happens in 2014. And Ukraine's military is in, in terrible shape. There was something I've heard between 6,000 and 7,000 combat ready soldiers in February of 2014, none of which were in Crimea. The 95th Brigade, I think the 93rd Brigade, and the 25th Brigade, two of which are air mobile brigades. Um, and then there were another, uh, depending on who you ask, you know, 30, 50, or 110,000 soldiers in various states of like conscription or mobilization or whatever. How many of them knew how to fire a rifle? How many of them even had rifles? Up for grabs. Right. 12 out of the 800 tanks. In, on paper that Ukraine could field were even, you know, not battle ready, but operational. I'm gonna go real far with 12 tanks. And they were uh, used for parades. So yeah. Ukraine between, uh, you know, February, March, 2014 and April, May, 2014, which is when this sort of DNR, LNR uh, revolution begins, which is led by Russian, uh, you know, Russian intelligence, Russian, I guess, the foreign equivalent of the CIA, essentially. It is very much a Russian movement. It is not a native revolution. Right. It is Russian-led um, and, and Russian-manned. Um, uh, it, it, it starts getting its military in shape a little bit, but it's still, it's riddled with corruption. It's riddled with 
pro-Russian, uh, you know, people who have spent time in the Russian military, who had friends in the Russian military. So Ukraine has, you know, months where it's just like, we got to get ourselves in order now. That's where the militias come from, the volunteer battalions and the militias. Poroshenko, Petro Poroshenko, who was the president at the time, basically did the last thing a president can do with a country and still even kind of call it a country, which is to say, hey guys, you know, if you got a gun, grab a gun. The state no longer has control of violence, but where you are, it's time to fight. And they actually, they, they almost pulled it off. They pushed the separatists back in, uh, I, I shouldn't even call them separatists. They pushed the Russian invasion yeah. of Donetsk and Lugansk back almost to the border, which is when Russia intervened directly with active duty Russian military and started pushing Ukraine's military back. Minsk one and Minsk two were negotiated again, once again, President Obama, Chancellor Merkel, EU, US, terrified of this war spreading, wants the war over, wants things to get back to normal with Russia, basically strong arms Ukraine into, hey, stop, like stop fighting, this is getting out of control. Even though not clear that Ukraine might not have been able to, you know, push back against the Russians once they reorganized and figured out, okay, you know, this is what we've got. Because Russia itself, you have to remember, was not mobilized in 2014. It took Russia a year to get the 200,000 soldiers in 2021 to 2022 that they massed to attack Ukraine. How many dudes did they have at that time? 10,000, 40,000, maybe? Like who could have carried arms? Do you think this has played some into the Western response now? Why the West is so involved in trying to help Ukraine is they looked back and went, mm, we probably could have stopped this if we'd have maybe not held back Ukraine from protecting themselves in 2014. You know, the fact that we went to the table and, and said, hey, let them have Luhansk and Donetsk and hey, let them have Crimea. You know, we don't want this. We don't want this fighting going on anymore. It's not good for us. If you think maybe there's some 2020 going on where they're like, if we'd have nipped it in the butt then or at least stayed out of Ukraine's way, then uh, we might not be here. So if we allow this to happen, what next? Do you think that might play into some of the mentality now of why the West is so supportive of Ukraine? To a certain extent, yes. Although if you look at December 2021, January 2022, February 2022, I mean, I haven't seen a full court diplomatic press on like stopping a war in my lifetime like we saw happen, like anything. Putin, please do not do this, you know? But I will say, I think Biden was one of the people, one of the outspoken people in Obama's administration who was like, come on, you know, his signature, Joe Biden, like, <laughs> come on, guy, like, what, what, we just gonna give him this thing? We're just yeah. like not gonna help the Ukrainian people? So it seems very plausible to me that Biden, having lived through that crisis, seeing another crisis said, look guys, I don't care. You I know, know where this goes too. Yeah, yeah, we gotta help these guys out. Um, and I think it's important, too, to go back to um, the 2014 thing. A lot of people in the United States, we were just talking about this earlier. A lot of people in the United States, a lot of people in the West are talking as if that was um, heavily influenced, if not spearheaded, by the West. This was the West trying to get Ukraine. This was the West trying to expand NATO. Um, the, you know, they, if not created it, at the very least, were the fuel behind it. Um, and I think that that has no leg to stand on when you look at their response to Crimea, Luhansk, and Donetsk. No if leg. The, if the West is the one behind all of this 
overthrowing of the uh, Soviet government style government rather in 2014 then in 2014 they're probably not allowing Russia to just cakewalk into Crimea and then not necessarily cakewalk into Luhansk and Donetsk it was actually a lot of people don't realize this that fighting has been going on ever since then in those regions and it's been like estimated over 15,000 people have died uh, since 2014 prior to the invasion that we all know about in February um, so I'm not going to make light of that and say it was a cakewalk but I think that that's I think that's important to bring up that that whole that whole uh, George Soros and all these people were behind the 2014 thing. Well, if their interests were so heavily involved and they were the ones spearheading, I'm pretty sure there would have been a little more response to Crimea, Luhansk, and, uh, Donetsk being being taken away. So I think that's important to bring up. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, I understand why why pro Russians want to lie about that and make it seem like it was some kind of American or NATO thing. It is a lie, um, provably so. Also obvious to anybody with a lick of common sense. Um, but for people who aren't pro Russians, like you got to be real dumb to not look at the facts and think that we had anything to do with it. Anything. I mean, also you got to look back at 2013. You know, remember where we were then. Do people were like writing essays about why NATO wasn't necessary in yeah. the Economist, like conservative publications? They were like, "Yeah, NATO. What do you know? What do we need this for?" Well, I think both sides agreed that NATO was totally was was irrelevant. Nobody they, wanted to they, waste yeah. money on that, yeah. you know. And so here we are in 2014, and it's like, oh, we ah, damn, we're like we need this thing, not right. because we want to waste money on you know some redundant bureaucracy that ties us to Europe. In, in a security sense that we have to fund a ton. Like, I remember, I remember the last tanks came out of Germany in 2012 under Obama. And I remember looking at that and thinking, what do we need NATO for? Me. Yeah. You know? Oh, I was I was one of those people who was like, NATO's useless. Like, there's no reason to have NATO. Everybody depends on us and our military in the United States anyways. Um, as long as we keep our strategic positions around the world, we're fine. NATO's irrelevant. Oh, I was one of those guys, absolutely. Um, but I think it's 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 amusing that well, not really amusing. It's terrible. But the the Western response is just such a typical Western response of, well, what what did the West do to gain for stand to gain from this, or why did they do this, or what should they do? Um, and we were talking earlier about uh, the Ukrainian people, uh, this country. We're going to take a little break from this timeline just to talk about that. Like these people, I have been blown away, as you know. Um, and I alluded to the fact that it was crazy that we're just meeting for the first time. We were both involved in the same volunteer effort um, at different times. So we hadn't crossed paths here, but via video calls and everything else, we've been involved in the same volunteer effort here. And so you're aware of the fact that I came here for three weeks over six months ago. Uh, there's a reason for that. These people are absolutely unbelievably incredible when it comes to their spirit and, and their heart and the motivation behind what they're doing. Like there are people who are determined, there are people who care, and there's people who are hurting all over the world. Um, unfortunately, I can't be in all of those places and none of those um, causes has, has pulled me in the way that this one has. And it's because of that, that pure, unadulterated hunger for democracy. And when I say democracy, I don't mean the cliche word. I don't mean the the bald eagle soaring through the air with ACDC playing in the background. I'm talking about a pure desire to have their family get 
the opportunity, not get things handed to them, but the opportunity to get whatever education they want to, to believe whatever they want to, to do whatever kind of work they want to, to feel loved, to have their neighbor taken care of, to have their neighbors taken care of, have the communities taken care of. This, this pride in country that isn't about an institution, it's about their own people. Um, on a level that I've just not seen before and to not want to be part of that cause is just impossible. It pulls at you. Um, they're not just fighting desperate. They're fighting with with heart and, and excitement over the prospect of what this could bring in the end. Um, and so once you get to know those people, uh, it's super easy to just laugh at anyone that says 2014 was about anything other than a group of people saying, no, we want this because if you've spent any time getting to know them, you just know that's the case. But for the people that haven't been here, the people that haven't, you know, um, had the opportunity to, to experience what I did, which was learning that I was completely wrong in everything I thought I knew about Ukrainian people. Um, even without that experience, those earmarks are there that we were talking about of, hey, you know, if, if this was a Western-led thing, then they wouldn't have given up Crimea. They wouldn't, have, I shouldn't say given up, I just sounded like the West. They wouldn't have stopped Ukraine from fighting against Crimea and uh, the takeover and then the same thing in the East. And so even without that personal endearment to the Ukrainian people, that, that should be enough to go, okay, we need to respect the fact that Ukraine is a, is a group of people that are a nationality and they're deciding what they do with their country. This isn't about NATO trying to expand. Ukrainians wanted to join NATO. This isn't about the United States wanting to spread democracy. This is about the people of, of Ukraine and what they want for their families, for their loved ones, and for their life. Um, and I think that's very important to remember. And I also think that it leads into the reactions that we see from Putin. That's that's literally the kryptonite to his system is, is a, a successful uh, uprising by the people. That is That is the kryptonite to his system. And so having it that close to his border um, obviously triggers the response of him taking Crimea and eastern Ukraine. And then I think it brings us to where we are today. Um, anything you want to fill in on the 2014 thing before we get talking about current modern day Ukraine? No, let's go. All right. So here we are, modern day Ukraine. What do you think, and this is one of the most speculated things, and I'm not saying that you have the answer, but I want to hear Adrian Bonnenberger's idea. What do you think was the trigger point? We've talked about all the motivation, all the reasons, and, and to make probably what's not the best analogy, but I think it's a nice, simple, clear analogy. It's you're running a business and you treat your employees like crap and you don't pay them anything, but everybody in the same industry is doing the same thing. And slowly but surely... Other businesses in the same industry start taking care of their employees and treating them like people and giving them health care and raising their salaries. And the harder they work, the more they get. And that's bad for business for you because your employees are going to start to look over and see that. So you're starting to make up lies. Wow, well, they have defective products. The stuff they're putting out is no good. It's all lies. They're not actually doing what they say they're doing. You start to control the narrative of what your employees are hearing. But now all of a sudden, that business is right next door and it's like... Half of their family works for that business. And you're going, okay, if this continues to thrive and this business does really well, I'm going to lose control over all of my employees because they want that way of life. Probably not the best analogy, but that's kind of what, in my opinion, we're looking at is this progression of the Orange Revolution and then the 2014 and moving on. And as he sees 
not only democracy take over in Ukraine, but thriving, being attractive, being something that his people in Russia would go, you know, you keep telling us democracy is terrible, but they're doing pretty well. Things look pretty good over there in Ukraine. Um, what do you think was the trigger point that he went, okay, this is it. If it goes any further, this is going to be bad. I need to step in. Well, I'm not sure that there was um, a trigger point in the sense that we mean it. If there was a trigger point, it it must have been. I mean, it was obviously in 2014 with Yanukovych, with, with that guy who he saw as personally someone he could trust somehow or, or tied to him. Um, but I think, I mean, I actually think the invasion, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was a miscalculation. So it's difficult for me to say there even was a trigger point. Okay. Because it was made on false premises. You know, Putin, in his mind, there's some kind of trigger point. And I think you're right that it has something to do with his perception of Ukraine. I think the trigger point, which we acknowledge, I, in my mind, is very clearly a miscalculation, was the perception that Zelensky was an unpopular president and that Ukraine was weak. And this is something that only ever existed in the falsified reports, you know, the false intel reports that, you know, the FSB was sending back to the Kremlin and which Putin himself desired to hear because this is what kicked the invasion off was his belief that it could be swiftly and uh, effectively prosecuted. Well, he wasn't alone. Most of us, most of the Western world, not in all of those points, but in believing that Ukraine was not going to hold on as long as they did. Um, there may have been a few pocket of people that had better information, but most military analysts in the West everywhere said, oh, Kiev's going to fall in three days. This is going to be a cakewalk for the Russian military. Um, and then those, the, the, excuse me, Zelensky thing, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I sometimes draw a parallel to uh, George W. Bush. George W. Bush wasn't really taken very seriously prior to 9-11 either. Um, and, and, and I think that the 9-11 and his response to it kind of changed what he'll be in the history books as far as how he was as a president, right? And so we see Zelensky. I don't know that he was unpopular. You probably know more than I do about that. But I have talked to a lot of Ukrainians who said they would have never imagined he was going to be this stoic. Um, so I don't know necessarily that he was unpopular, but I don't think a lot of people expected this incredibly stoic response from him uh, to the invasion. Zelensky was not popular prior to the invasion for a number of reasons. Um, expectations, it's the same thing with any democracy. You know, somebody gets put into power and everybody thinks everything's going to get better uh, measurably, if not astonishingly. And then things don't get better in a democracy very quickly. It's just not how democracy works. It's right. not how bureaucracy works, centralized or decentralized. And he did some things that were really good. His decentralization program has been terrific and is one of the reasons that Ukraine has been able to endure, I think, as a country as, as, as well as possible by empowering, you know, normal everyday Ukrainians at the oblast level, at the city level, saying, you guys can make your own decisions, figure this stuff out. I don't have time because I'm in Kyiv. Um, and then also with the military, just letting the military reforms take shape and take root. Um, you know, that's probably even if, 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 if anything will be seen um, in the history books as being like a wise thing to do, both Zelensky and Poroshenko, letting that transformation happen 
uh, or or encouraging it to happen was terrific. But Zelensky was not popular. I don't re- I don't remember if his approval rating was around fifty percent or forty percent, but it was definitely like people weren't psyched about Zelensky until those first few days when he very prominently stayed and said, "I'm here. I'm with you. I'm I'm in it until the end." Uh, I will say. I didn't know how poorly Russia's military would perform. I don't think anybody really predicted that. A few people thought like, you know, probably they're, you know, it's, it's, this isn't a great matchup for Russia. This isn't as great of a matchup as we think, but everybody really assumed that Russia's air power was going to, you know, swing things in the balance. uh, I'm the mud on the face guy. Absolutely. I, I was right about a couple things. I was right that Ukraine would fight. I knew that they had a modern military. I've, I'd seen the fortifications in the east. I knew it was not going to be easy for any kind of military to just steamroll through that. And then I also, having lived in Kiev, as you have now too, you know, Kiev is a big city. Kiev has a metro system that has the deepest metro in the world. And it was designed to withstand, I mean, Kiev was built, rebuilt by the USSR after retaking um, Kiev from the Germans, from the Nazis in 1943, it was one of the bloodiest battles in the war. Uh, the, the, US, the Red Army lost so many uh, soldiers so quickly, 120,000 in a week against the Germans. It actually allowed the Germans in 1943 to mount the last operational counteroffensive of the war, bought them another few months because Stalin insisted on taking Kiev before November 7th and November 8th. There's some, some like USSR holiday, some dumb thing. Um, but the point with all of this is I knew that when I saw that there were 40,000 soldiers aligned against Kiev from the north and people were like, well, they'll just, you know, blitzkrieg it or something like that. I was like, guys, you know, if you've got 10,000 dudes in Kiev, you can hold out against 40, shit, you could hold out against like fucking 100,000. Like Russia's not going to do this. Plus, Russia's not really a blitzkrieg military. So I have gotten some things wrong. I've gotten swept up in motion about a lot of stuff. But one thing that I did get right is I knew they weren't going to be able to take Kiev quickly. Um, and, and here's another thing I want to point out really quickly. It's like really important. Putin's assessment of Zelensky's weakness and Ukraine's weakness depended on him misunderstanding how Ukraine is as a country. Even if Zelensky had been taken out in the beginning, especially... Oh, I think it would have been worse for Russia. Somebody else would have stepped into the gap. Zelensky's popular because he stayed. He, like, he gets his legitimacy from the people. Right. You know? If, oh, if, yeah, he's not popular because he's been an amazing orator through this. He's popular because he put on a, a fleece quarter zip and and got down with the troops and got some photo ops and got on TV and said, Hey, whatever we go through, I'm going through it with you. That's basic why it's leadership. popular. Yeah. Basic leadership. Yeah. If he gets mar- martyred tomorrow, we call it basic leadership, up. but I don't see very much of it anywhere else in the world these days. Unfortunately, Yeah. Not. Yeah. No, I definitely think that, uh, Zelensky, if, if nothing else has just been, um, basically a symbol of the Ukrainian spirit. And I think that it is, it is, been incredible to see you know like i i was already impressed with what i had seen of him on the television before i came over to ukraine um but i think yeah getting here i get it now because he pretty much replicates most of the people that i meet in ukraine just a no we're here for we're here for each other we're here to get through this i was telling you earlier um i was down in mikolaiv 
with uh, some of the nonprofit work that I'm doing here, and we were anticipating, okay, Mikolaev's getting shelled five, six, seven times a day, missiles fired in a city center, people dying every single day in their sleep. So we're going to get in there, and we're going we're gonna to be saving some lives. We're going to pull people out of here. We're going to get them out of here. And nobody wants to leave. And I was telling you earlier, to a person, every single person, we're like, okay, you realize, like, missiles blew up the building next to you, you're boiling water on a wood stove right now. Um, why do you not want to leave? We're offering this for free. Well, if I leave, how's my elderly neighbor next door going to carry their five-gallon water bucket down to get water every morning? And 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 how's this family across the street going to be able to do this? Like, no, we don't. We, we're, we're a unit. We're a community. And if I leave, I'm not here helping my community. And that is kind of the mentality of Ukraine is, hey, it doesn't really, and it's not like a, like a brazen toughness like you're going to see in a superhero movie it's not like a, oh we're not scared of anything it's a that's not how we operate that's not how we're wired we take care of each other we go through trials together we go through tribulations together and then we celebrate together and that's what we do we're one big cohesive hard-working caring family um and so i think that Zelensky's just been a really good kind of replication of that spirit um and i think that that where you were talking about Putin underestimating Zelensky. And I think that just carries over to, I don't think he can even wrap his brain around how that works. Yeah. To him, that doesn't work in his system. That person's weak. That person's not going to survive a week in the Kremlin. That person's not going to be able to rise. That person's not going to be able to succeed in anything because that doesn't work in his system. So I don't think he can wrap his brain around understanding that you know i i don't recall who i first heard this from and i don't want to claim that it's a personal quote but it's one that i or i mean a personal phrase i made up because i did hear it somewhere but i use it all the time and that's that a fighting force that's fighting just because they hate what's in front of them is going to get defeated every time by a fighting force that's fighting because they love what is behind them mm -hmm. and he can't wrap his brain around the idea that when you're fighting for a purpose, when you're fighting with heart, when you're fighting with resolve, when you're leading with a purpose, when you're leading because you want your people to have a better life, not because you want more money or because you want more power, but you're leading because you want your people to have a better He can't wrap his brain around the fact that that is why democracy is succeeding all over the world. It works and you win battles that way. And I don't think he, I don't think he can even wrap his brain around that. Now, that I think is what I think, not quite trigger point, but like, I think there's, there's probably, and, and I'm, I'm not a psychologist, um, and I don't want to psychologize Putin, and I haven't read enough to claim to be a Putin expert, but this basic sort of common sense understanding of how people work, like, there is the fact of people are at their best when they are empowered to be at their best by their society and by their surroundings. And the closest approximation we've come to that in our system is an egalitarian, meritocratic, humanist system in which people have some authority and autonomy to, uh, for, for political, uh, uh, political authority or autonomy. We call it democracy. It could also be representative democracy or republicanism or whatever. Um, but, but, you're exactly right that that's like that is immediately like the greatest challenge to the authority of an authoritarian system especially of 
fascistic system or a totalitarian system where there's total centralization of the state and the state has to be right all the time because the state can't be right all the time. Like it's, it's obvious. Even if you had like the smartest person in the world, like of all time, no entity is right all the time. You just can't be because you don't know what's going on in a country of 330 million in the case of the United States or 140 million in the case of Russia or even 40 million in the case of, of Ukraine, 40, you know, 42 million. You don't even know that in, in the state of Connecticut, which is like you know, <laughs> right? 2 million people. Yeah. Like they, they do, do dumb stuff all the time because they don't know what's going on because you can't. Um, and so um, I think that that like, I think at the same time, like, it doesn't compute for Putin, but like he probably like emotionally and intuitively understands that that like you're right. Like he you cannot permit a system contrary to the system that he has right next door. And I think one of the things that you see with that, uh, and it's the the saddest thing for me to see when it gets pumped into the United States, um, the, the 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 conversations in the far left and the far right is this all-consuming cynicism, you know? Cynicism and irony is how you combat sincerity and uh, creativity. You say, well, you know, they're just doing it that way because it's within the, it's, it's in their self-interest. You know, there's no such thing as altruism. Altruism is itself a kind of selfishness. And that's a poison, man. Like, and that's a poison that, yes, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to get conspiratorial about Russia, but that is lit, like, literally what they were what they're pumping into the narrative of the world right now oh yeah communications wise because they need people to believe that nobody that old person you know that old man or old woman who has a neighbor in ukraine like well he's rich that's why that guy's helping him oh he's only helping him for some sort of self-interested reason not because his neighbor just wants to help him because he's an yeah. old dude and he can't carry five gallons of water by himself yeah and i think that on some level it's a he can't comprehend it you know i i, I Obviously, a lot of the propaganda is very intentional and well thought out. Sorry. When in Ukraine. Air raid. Um, some of it is very intentional, very well thought out, and very strategic. But I think some of it, too, and it goes back to also his underestimation when he first invaded, is I don't think that he gets it. I don't think that it's it's within his realm of understanding on some level that, yeah. that somebody could operate on that on that level because for him so he grew up you know, I'm sure you know he grew up impoverished as a child um, in poverty and was obsessed with the idea of becoming somebody with influence over people being somebody that um, being somebody that wasn't just a number or a, or a face on the street, you know, becoming something. And he, and he was obsessed with the KGB. And so he went on to be in the KGB and he was called the moth because he was known for just being a complete nobody, not standing out, not doing terribly, and just waiting for the opportunity to find somebody with power who needed something and provide it out of nowhere without them even knowing he was going to do it. And just working his way up that way of being the guy that you knew no matter what it was you needed done whether that was a village being killed off, no matter what it was, he was your guy. He'll fix it. He'll make it done. When he was elected the first time, nobody in Russia, when he was when his name first came up, nobody thought he was going to get elected because he was a nobody. He had no political record. Um, he wasn't charismatic at the time. He wasn't a good orator. He's improved a little bit since. Um, and nobody thought, he, but he had that many people that knew this is the guy that can get it done. 
that that's how he ended up with the presidency and he's running the country the same way is whatever it takes to get it done. And that's going to lead into a probably uncomfortable part of this conversation a little bit, which is what's the future. Um, and I don't think we're there yet. I just wanted to continue to touch on, you know, he, he, he went on with the, with the Chechnyan thing to go back to kind of what his play is. Um, uh, as I'm sure, you know, there was, I don't, I don't remember the years, 2002, maybe. Um, I don't recall when it was that the, that the, uh, Chechnyan thing first kicked off but when things weren't going his way in the um in the home front as far as the perspective of the Russian people and they weren't supporting his uh his efforts in in Chechnya the way he wanted it um it's been all pretty much proven that he planted bombs in Russia as false flag operations um there was one where they found the bombs before they went off and arrested I believe it was 14 people um, and then it turned out those 14 people were FSB officers. So suddenly it all disappeared from the news and went away. Um, you know, that's his thing is whatever it takes, I'll get it fixed. And it's how he got to the presidency from being a nobody in the streets was just finding those people watching, just sitting in the corner like a moth and watching and seeing, okay, who is it that really moves things around here? I'm going to be the guy that that person needs and just kept doing that until he was the guy the whole country needs. Um, to get things fixed. And so that is where I think we get to the point where the big question, so what is Putin, who's used to always finding a way to get his way no matter how many people he has to kill, uh, what does Putin do when his military is getting their ass kicked and the whole world is kind of getting against him with the exception of other uh, empirical countries? Um, what does he do when things are not going his way? It does not look promising for him from a military standpoint. Um, what's his reaction? But before we get into all that, uh, you want to take a quick break? Sure. Uh, yeah. Let's. There are no words that I can find to adequately describe what I encountered when I came to Ukraine. These people are incredible. This cause is the most worthy effort that I've had the privilege of being involved with myself. If it's something that you feel you want to become involved with, either by volunteering or donating, I would ask that you look into Dark Horse Allies. Dark Horse is the organization that I'm involved with over here. It's a nonprofit organization. Members have been operating in Ukraine since the early days of the Russian invasion. Comprised of both civilians and military veterans like myself from around the world, Dark Horse is a collective of volunteers on an independent mission to try and preserve innocent human lives. The name Dark Horse is a nod to the unbreakable spirit of the Ukrainian people who entered this battle as underdogs, but have inspired the entire free world through their determination, and as we always tell these guys, by surviving with their hearts. If you would like to become involved, please head over to darkhorseallies.org, or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at facebook.com slash darkhorseallies, or obviously instagram.com slash Dark Horse Allies. By signing up right now to become an ally for as little as $7 a month, you could become a part of this effort. We would love to have you join us. If you're interested in volunteering, please reach out through the website. We do have opportunities for anybody that wants to become involved on any level. And now we return to the podcast. Quite a few chains here. You got Kentucky Fried Chicken, you got McDonald's, you got Domino's Pizza. I'm not going to lie, maybe I shouldn't say this because I don't want to take in this idea, but Where's Taco Bell? I think Taco Bell would kill it in this country. Like, not necessarily because I'm a huge Taco Bell fan. I do like some Taco Bell occasionally. Yeah. But just looking at kind of what Western types of things they like here, I feel like Taco Bell would be one that would just crush it. So, 
I don't know how McDonald's does it. I do know that like the 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 weird stopping point that I've found with Mexican food in general here is that the beef is different. And I don't know like what it is about the beef. I don't know if it's like a feed thing, like they're not eating the same food or what, but like it's just like tough to oh. get that same Oh, it's it's funny you say that because I thought for the longest time that they just made their burgers different. I was like, I don't know what they're putting yeah, yeah, in yeah, it. Yeah. Like it almost tasted like I don't know, liver. Yeah. Which I like liver. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm yeah. saying like there was something different before I finally realized like, no, they're beef. Like all their beef yep. just tastes different. And it's not bad different. It's just it's just different. Different. Yeah. In fact, I don't know how they do it. I'll have to ask. But I found a, a place, it's basically a dive bar, but they've got your typical dive bar food, like burgers and chicken fingers and stuff. Only place I have discovered since I got here that I bit into the burger and was like, whoa. This is a hamburger. Yeah. I feel like I just grilled a hamburger on my back porch in the United States. This tastes like a hamburger. Um, and it actually was kind of anticlimactic because I was also just like, I think theirs might be better. I don't know now that I've been eating theirs for a while and I've been into this. But it was it was nostalgic to actually taste something that tasted like I'm used to a hamburger tasting. So, I like I said, for the longest time, I thought that their hamburgers just... I don't know. They're doing something different with their ground beef. But then I realized, like, their steaks taste different, too. I don't know if you've noticed. Like, you go to a restaurant that has steaks. Oftentimes on the menu, they have from the USA or from Ukraine. Like, the same cut. It'll be like, you want a sirloin from the United States or from Ukraine. And I always just was like, I feel like it would be fresher from Ukraine. So that's probably the better. But I came to find out it's not necessarily that one's better than the other. They're just different. They taste different. Yeah. Yeah, but opportunities, you know, opportunities for, um, you know, for businesses when this is all done, like, you know, Rick's, uh, what is it in Casablanca? Rick's uh, Cafe. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, You just bring in a piece of something. Yeah. Like well, I'm or, like, I've been, I'm that guy that I'm always stubborn like this. When something's super trendy, I'll be the last person to ever get on board. Like, I still have not watched the Titanic for no other reason that it was so ridiculously popular when I was in high school. I was like, no, I'm not going to be the guy that watched the Titanic. So I'm just that way. Um, so I still haven't tried it, but everyone tells me that McDonald's in Europe is nothing like the United States. And it's actually really, really good. I won't do it yet, but it blows my mind. So McDonald's is one of the businesses that closed here. Yep. As soon as the invasion happened, they closed all their branches. We don't want to be liable or you know have responsibility if any of our employees are killed because they were at work. Well, they opened in Kiev last Monday, I believe it was. Tuesday evening, the line was still bound the block and around the corner. Wow. I have pictures, like a little timeline almost of like when it opened, I took a picture because like, look at this line for a McDonald's. Yeah. And then I drove by later that evening and the line was still just as long. So I have one in the dark. And then the next day, so it's just unbelievable. For like three days, people lined up down around the corner and it's not just like young kids it's like sophisticated society there's you know six figure two hundred and fifty thousand dollar mercedes parked up there while people are in line for mcdonald's it's it's there's an obsession here for sure taste of freedom i get well man i don't know if i want to give mcdonald's that credit but yeah i definitely (laughs) see the parallel um yeah i don't know but they definitely love the mcdonald's so yeah there's probably some business opportunities but don't I don't want it getting flooded too much because I make a point of trying to avoid uh, American food. I'm over here because their food is amazing. I don't want to try all of it. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like borscht. It's funny we were working with um, some military units, and when we first went to the first one, like I was all excited because we come up on lunchtime, 
and I can see they've got like the big pot of borscht and the bread and the, you know, well, they don't call it pierogi, so the vreniki. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, we're gonna have some good lunch and everybody's in line for it. And the officers come up like, oh no, 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 no. For you, you have something special. For you Americans, we have something. I'm like, I really like borscht. Like I'm kind of excited about this, but okay, cool. And they take us around the corner and they've got Domino's pizza and French fries sitting there for us because they just assume that's what Americans want. And I right. was like, I right. want the borscht. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, Ukrainian food is delicious. In fact, yeah. I kind of already knew that without knowing that because I always attributed like pierogies and everything to Poland. Right. So I thought I just really liked Polish food until you come here and say that to a Ukrainian and then you get your head bit off. Like, no, that is Ukrainian. The Poles <laughs> stole it from us. Um, so yeah, no, uh, Ukrainian food is delicious. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we can get back to uh, back to work now. So we kind of went through the timeline of Ukraine to present um, Putin, I don't know, there's a whole lot more I would touch on other than to just say that, you know, he's used to that power system being the only one that works and the only way it works is if the people believe it. Um, because obviously when you have a centralist government like that, you're a very small subsector of your society. If you're not spreading the power, that means it's a very few people and you can very easily be overthrown if the people don't believe in it. Um, and so in my personal opinion, uh, I agree with you that I don't think there was a trigger point that made February 24th happen. I think the trigger point was 2014, and he's just been building since then to prepare for this. I think it's been in the works since then. In my personal opinion, I am far from an expert. Um, but I think that the trigger point was 2014. I think that's when he went, okay, not only am I seeing that people can change the future of a country, it's happening right next door, and it's it's 2014 now. It's 2022. Social media, all the world's connected now. I can't just own the newspapers and the TV stations, and my people never hear anything different. That they're going to hear stories, and it's Ukraine. Half of them have a cousin that lives in Ukraine. Half of them have half their family in Ukraine. They're going to hear, they're going to discover that democracy is actually going really well for them over there, that they were able to disagree with their government and do something about it. And I can't have that. And I think that that was, I think that was what set in motion of, hey, I, I can't have this right next door. And not because, oh, you know, the United States is coming for us next or the West is coming for us next or NATO's trying to set up on our front door because they're going to invade us. I don't, he knows that's absurd. He knows that's never going to happen. That nobody even wants to do that. It was strictly a, I can't let my people see what's going on and how democracy is working next door or else my entire system is going to crumble um, because it's built on blind obedience by the people. Um, and so that would be, in my opinion, uh, kind of how Putin got to where he got. But now we know where we are. So we got in March. You were the guy that says uh, they can certainly defend Kiev. They can defend the East fairly well. We'll see how it goes. I'm the guy who is very ignorant. All the facts that I've mentioned today, I have learned in the last seven months. Um, never spent a lot of time on studying Ukraine. Russia, quite a bit. Ukraine, not so much. Um, so I know Putin's story better than I know Ukraine's, um, which is not something to be proud of because Ukraine's story is a much better story. Now I know that. Um, so I was the guy that was going, oh, I mean, I remember when the missiles first started hitting it. In fact, this is actually really ironic. I had just finished playing hockey. Um, in a men's league and we're sitting out back having a couple beers and I start seeing the notifications on the phone that Russia's invading Ukraine and I was like oh man like guys 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 like 
you know, Russia's doing it. They're launching missiles. They're invading. They're going after Kiev. Like this is all happening right now. And um, most of the guys I play hockey with aren't real into world politics or foreign affairs. And so like, oh, okay. And I was like, I, I got to go, guys. I'm sorry. I can't hang out and have a beer. And it was because I, this is monumental. I need to get home. I need to turn on the news and have my laptop open and, and find out what's going on. But when I said, I got to get going, they're like, what, are you going to go to Ukraine and help them? Well, <laughs> little did you know. Yeah. Uh, it didn't happen that night, and I didn't think it was coming either. Uh, but I did end up over here, so there you go. Um, in fact, that's another fun little story, and I know I've already shared this with you, but I'll just go ahead and share it on here. Is So I, I don't remember, maybe a week, 10 days after it starts, I've had a couple conversations with people um, about, man, I, I, I kind of want to go, but I'm not going to just show up and be like, hey, I want to fight Russians because that's not what I want to do. I don't even know how it would help. So, um, you know, whatever. I, I would like to, but I don't really see the value that I can bring. And then I'm watching um, Anderson Cooper one night, and he's interviewing these three guys, whoever they're doing military training and teaching civilians how to fight since they're going to have to fight soon. And and uh, and the value that's bringing, I just, I actually DVR'd it and like played it back a few times. I was like, oh, all right, those guys are doing something. So kind of put that on the shelf, forgot all about it, whatever. Um, and so I ended up over here and you and I have been talking for like three months via video calls. And, uh, I come across that video again. There was that news clip from Anderson Cooper on somebody's website and I'm watching him go, wait, that's Adrian. <laughs> like the, the, the news clip that I saw that really got the wheels turning on, oh, there's something I could do over there to help. It's the guy that I've been talking to for two months and we're both involved in the same program and I didn't even put two and two together. So, um, yeah, in fact, it was kind of cool. The other two guys who were in the video uh, swung through uh, a few days ago, and I got to see them as well. So, But uh, anyhow, so the war kicks off in February. We've kind of talked about why we all think it got to that point um, and what his motivation was. Now, in the beginning, uh, he is claiming what exactly as, as his ambition, because I'm going to define this since the story changes so many times. Um, as he takes losses, naturally, he just brings the goal a little further back and goes, oh, we didn't lose. This is all I'm trying to attain. When he first comes in, as I recall, it is make official Crimea in the east. Um, but he's attacking Kiev. And he. I remember the news being, I don't remember if it was him saying it outright that I, I saw in an interview or if it was a message from the Kremlin, but and Zelensky must die. Um, so how do you how do you recall it? What was the defined goal in the beginning of this invasion? So as I recall it, the when when it kicked off, I think the night before, um, because it kicked off here. You and I experienced it the night of the twenty third. Correct. Yeah, and it was morning of the twenty fourth here. Night of the twenty third here, I believe um, Putin made this really sort of shocking belligerent speech that talked about this is where one of the places where they talked about denazifying right, right, right. Ukraine yeah. and and all of the things that that means and i think overall um, between his you know what his original statements were and a piece that he wrote um, in western press uh, a, a year prior in 2021 um, the position that Putin staked out for Russia during the invasion was the subjugation of Ukraine to Russia, the destruction of Ukrainian culture, the destruction of Ukraine's language, 
and the removal of what he described as an illegal administration. Yes, that's what it was. It was not kill Zelensky, it was remove the illegal administration. Um, When you say subjugate to Russia, is that an annexation or is that just a, as the Soviet style area likes to do, a really nondescript, not really clear relationship between two countries? I think uh, it's difficult to say now because we never got to see it happen in reality, but I suspect they would have been happy because Putin is also an opportunist. People used to see that as like a strength of his. And I think in terms of reacting to events, it can be a strength. But when you're the person planning them, not <laughs> yeah, great. you're not supposed to be reacting. Not no, great. no, no, no. You should uh, already know how that's going to go. Right. Yeah. So I think probably he would have been happy with a DNR, LNR type situation that involved Kiev down to Odessa and all the way to the east and probably a Western Ukrainian rump state because even in Russia, they know that Western Ukrainians have never really been a part of Russia. It was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was part of Poland. It was... uh, There's a a very distinct difference between Eastern and Western Ukraine. Yes. The people, the, the geography, all of it, yeah. Yes, and there are rivers that you can sort of use to demarcate Um, But having said all of that, of course, Western and Eastern Ukrainians both perceive themselves as Ukrainian now far more so than 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 ever, probably. Um, But I think that's probably what he would have been okay with. Just cutting Ukraine into a rump state that had no access to the ocean, linking up Transnistra or um, uh, certainly linking up, you know, Crimea to Russia with a land bridge and the destruction of Ukraine as a culture and as a language and as an identity. And, and the punishment of people who had the audacity to believe that they could live out their lives without Russia. Without Russia. Yeah, and, and we'll rabbit trail for a second because you talked about a couple things I want to talk about. So denazification. The irony is absurd that he tries to use the hot button of fascism when he's He's operating as probably the most fascist person on earth right now. Um, and it's prevalent. And, and one thing that bothers me about the hot buttons that he uses into those of us, um, I guess, who pay a lot of attention to foreign affairs all the time and have lived in this world pretty much all of our adult life. It's, it's laughable, but, but and obvious that he's just using hot buttons. It's kind of like um, having our politicians, you know, talk about I carry hot sauce in my purse everywhere I go because race is a big issue at that particular time. Like you laugh at it, you go, okay, I see what you're doing. Like that's not even like, we see it that way, but it's working. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of people in the West that are kind of gobbling this up, this denazification, this Ukraine persecuted anyone that speaks Russian. We were talking about this earlier. I mean, it's hilarious. I interacted foolishly because it's stupid to even try to interact on Twitter, but with, with somebody on Twitter who had posted, you know, well, Ukraine has been killing anyone that speaks Russian in Ukraine for years. I'm like, well, tell me how you've never been to Ukraine without telling me you've never been to Ukraine. Because uh, once you get east of central Ukraine and even half of central Ukraine, you don't hear Ukrainian again. They're starting to try and learn it now as, as their means of showing that they'd prefer to be Ukraine. Um, but no, everybody speaks Russian, even in the capital, 
half the people speak probably more than half the people speak Russian. I spent months trying to get a handle on Ukrainian and then I started working more in the east and it does me no good because everybody speaks Russian. And and they're proud Ukrainians. They're wearing blue and yellow everywhere they go. They have a flag on their car. They they give us hugs and thank us for coming over and, and give us the shirt off their back like they're proud Ukrainians. Um, they just speak the Russian language. So that whole misnomer of, oh, well, Ukraine's been persecuting Russian speakers. A, it's ridiculous, and B, like, I don't even, I don't understand how, how he would even think that would work, and yet somehow it seems to, because it takes a Google search. You can literally just check Google, like, what percentage of Ukrainians speak Russian. It's most of them, uh, including the president, as we talked about, spoke Russian. He's, he's learned Ukrainian now, but he was a native Russian speaker, and he's the president of Ukraine and the face of the movement against Russia right now. Um, and then the Nazi thing. It's actually, uh, there's a website. Um, I don't want anyone to go follow it, so I'm not going to say what it is, but there's a website on one of the platforms that's devoted to finding volunteers in Ukraine and putting bios with as much information as they can find on them and calling them out as another Nazi volunteer. And of course, no matter what that individual is doing, whether they're taking food to a village or giving health care to people they label them as a nazi mercenary that works for this organization and and this nazi theme and do you think that's just because of the and i want to talk about this so we can kind of dispel this but the the azov battalion do you think this is he saw an opportunity that, okay this one thing does exist um there's this azov battalion and they do have some nazi uh influence and do make some nazi claims um, and even though they are a tiny, tiny part of society here, uh, you know, there's probably more KKK and white nationalism in the United States um, per capita than Azov represents in Ukraine. Um, but because he had something he could point out, that's why he chose that. Like, where did this Nazi thing come from? Because it's so anti-reality. Like, these, these people are so anti-communist, it's absurd. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, I mean... We think that the, that the right and the left um, are, get muddy back in the United States. Like here, it's we were talking about this earlier, it's not so much a right and a left as is almost like this combination of conservatives and liberalism, like the best parts of both. Um, but at the end of the day, they're all anti-communism, like very anti-communist. So where did this Nazi thing come from? Was it just because he had one thing he could point at and say, well, there's some Nazis there? So the first thing is, you know, and having lived in the space uh, I lived in Ukraine 20, from 2016 to 2017, um, you know, traveled there extensively in 2015 and have, you know, been here periodically back since. Um, you need to understand the historical context of this place, you know, and Ukraine is a place that has been invaded by the Ottomans, the Austro-Hungarians, the Poles, the Russians, the Swedes did it in the early 18th century, Charles XII, uh, and the Germans, the Nazis. And I think that, you know, the important thing to acknowledge up front is that the experience in Ukraine of different people under Nazi occupation was either horrible, horrible, good horrible or um no that's pretty much it it's yeah. like horrible no. horrible or good to horrible and the good to horrible were the people 
non-Jewish people who were not immediately targeted by the Nazis upon the Nazis arriving in a city. The first people that the Nazis went after were communists and Jews. And the Holocaust was perpetuated here. I think 1.5 million Jewish people were killed here. Um, however, the people that not the Nazis went after, um, after the uh, as many Jewish people as they could were ethnically cleansed from Ukraine. And I mean, they, they got most of them. Uh, they got almost all of them. Um, you know, the next people on the list were the Slavs, were Ukrainians themselves. And so I think 2 million Ukrainians were um, taken as slave laborers to Germany. Like horrible, horrible things happened to the Ukrainians. They saw the Nazis as good initially because their lives had been so fucking miserable under first the Russian Empire and then the USSR that they saw the Germans show up and they were like, great, anything, anything will be better than what we've gone through. And there is still a memory of that. This isn't as bad as the USSR in parts of Ukraine, especially parts that the German army went through, just bypassed. Your experience with a German soldier was probably a dude who, by all accounts, paid for the cow. You know, the Red Army didn't pay for the cow. They just took the cow. We were appropriating. Well, now they take space. washing machines. But now yeah, they yeah, take yeah. washing machines. Yeah. Same, same principle. Yeah, Before yeah. it was cows, now it's washing right, machines. Right, right. And so there is this kind of like, the Nazis weren't as bad as the Soviets. Mostly, to them. Mostly the way because, they treated them. Mostly because they weren't there as long. You know, their experience of the Nazis was a few days or a couple of years and by definition, it wasn't something that happened to you because you didn't get killed because you're remembering, obviously. Right. So there is this kind of in certain pockets of Ukraine, not different from other European countries, no different from Germany, no different from Sweden, no different from Russia. There is a memory of this thing that wasn't the Soviets that was better in some ways than the Soviets. That is the memory of the Nazis in certain places. It's an ignorant memory, but it is a memory. And that's the foundation of a thing like Azov Battalion, as it was in 2014 and 2015. I had I only reported on them in 2015. I saw a Nazi influence there when I reported on them in 2015. I've also heard a lot of people over the last couple of years say that they professionalized since then and they drove the Nazis out. I can't confirm that or deny that, but whatever the case, there are absolutely extremists in every country and yeah. every fucking military. Militaries are all sort of, you know, hotbeds of extremism because it's people who believe passionately enough in some idea that they're willing to put, put their your life on the line, line yeah. for it. Yeah. Um, but it, I think overall, it is 100% fair to characterize that idea, the, the idea of Ukrainians or Nazis, as the most filthy, wicked, despicable lie that Putin and his cronies put out. And I absolutely push back against it. 100, yeah, 100%. Are oh, yeah, absolutely. Nazis? No, they're not. No, no, absolutely not. And I was just, I'm glad that you gave me some of that history because like I said, if it was just about the Azov Battalion, I didn't understand why that would even be a talking point that he thought he could sell. Um, but again, going back to, I won't say Western ignorance, but a large a large group of people that don't want to take the time to do any research. They just want to go with the most titillating story they just heard. Uh, you know, there's people that will make it sound like the Azov Battalion are the only people fighting in Ukraine, and it's all right. a bunch of Nazis going out there and fighting against Russia. And it's just mind-bending um, to hear those things when we're here 
we've been here. We're, we're, we're pretty involved with what's going on and we're meeting some of the most incredible people with, with the most incredible motivation um, that like you just said, are as far from the Nazi mentality as you can possibly get. Um, having that be one of the hot buttons, but let me, let me say really quickly, cause I think this is important too, just for people's general understanding of world war two and like, and, and, and where Ukraine was in 1941 when the Nazis rolled in. Stalin had, Stalin had put together like this comprehensive plan for what happened if the, the Nazis came in and invaded and it involved stay behind units and sort of communist saboteurs and partisan warfare. And we think about like the great miscalculation of Putin, of Putin vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine was believing that most Ukrainians would immediately support Putin. The great miscalculation of Stalin and one of the reasons that the Nazi military did as well as they did when they were invading Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, is Stalin had like assigned, let's, let's, let's imagine this 100% of the sabotage groups, like 12 dudes in every community who are gonna be communicating locations of you know, Nazi units and reporting them to the Red Army so the Red That's Army right. can move, this sort of great stay behind apparatus that was intelligence, that was military, that was partisan, 3% of those were effective. The local populace turned on 97% of them. The local populace, as the Germans were coming in, were like, no, 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 right over that hill, there's like a group of 10 dudes, fucking kill them. Jeez. You know? That because yeah. they hated the communists yeah. that much. Yeah. Like that. So it's a trend. That's the legacy. It's a trend that the Absolutely. leaders of this Soviet mentality underestimate how much their people don't appreciate the life they them. live. Yeah. 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 And so, and I think too, I hate to give too much. Uh, attribute too much intelligence to them um, given some of the other absurd and egregious mistakes we've seen them make. But when it comes to the propaganda, that's been his, that's been his meal ticket. That's been his, his thing for a while. I don't remember what year it was, but there was, there was a year in which the oligarchs who controlled all of the media in Russia started to disagree with Putin, I believe it was in his second term. And that's when he, basically turned it into, I mean, they literally call it state media themselves. They're not ashamed to say, 100% uh, controlled by the office of the president. Um, and he's and he's learned how to weaponize that and how to use that to control his people. And I, I look at the hot buttons that he chose to put out there as propaganda with this. And I look at the Nazis, okay, claiming everybody in Ukraine is Nazis. Religion, all of a sudden, he's very concerned with the morality of the West and, and the gays, and they're forcing their boys to turn into girls, and we don't want that here in our country. And, and I look... Degeneracy. Yeah, dege it. degeneracy, yes. The immoral West. And then... Um, sorry, I got another alarm here real quick. Let me turn that off. This was actually letting us know we're all clear. So that's oh, great. Nice. Um, and, then, uh, and then the bio labs. You know, claiming that the United States had these bio labs and were creating weapons that we're going to use on the Russian people because clearly, as we've demonstrated over the last seven months, we really want to go to war with Russia. Um, <laughs> as we have had more opportunity and reason to do so than ever and still are not. So it's you can pretty much write off any any idea that we were trying to have a war with Russia. But he looks at these hot button points and it's interesting because if you analyze who makes the most waves with the least amount of people on the internet in the West? 
those are hot button issues. Those are things that Twitter blows up about. Those are things that Instagram blows up about that, that, you know, the squeaky wheel, if you will, of these, you know, gay rights and this, that it's, it's like he very intentionally found, okay, tell them they're Nazis. And then, oh, we got to appease all the religious people too. tell them they're super immoral and they're going to, and they're going to come here and force our, our kids to be gay. Cause that's what we do in the West. Um, and then, and then hit that, that button of the ever popular, their military is up to no good. They're going to use biological weapons, whatever it, it is actually a fairly strategic three hot buttons to push. And it's kind of turning out to be that way. And I don't think that in general, the people of the West are eating up the propaganda. I can't say real well, because I've been pretty involved in what I'm doing here for the last seven months. I'm a little out of touch. But I do think he's got some of those squeaky wheels going. Um, and it's one of those things, too, that just, it, it just, as you know, it bends your brain when you're like, no, you don't understand. Like, this isn't, I disagree with you. This is, I know for a fact that's absurd because I'm here witnessing the polar opposite of what you're saying right now. Um, what do you think, and, and this is all speculation, but what do you think is is causing that to take some traction in some places? Do you think it's a political, uh, you know, it helps somebody politically, or is it just strictly entertainment? This one is way more exciting to think about. Like, ooh, what if everybody's lying to us and they're actually all Nazis and he's doing a good thing? Is it that simple? What? Yeah. I think part of it is, to a certain extent, you can always depend on people thinking in abstract terms when they're not in a place seeing a thing themselves. Media has very low credibility these days for, you know, not bad reasons. Like, media, there, there are bad journalists, there are state journalism outfits like RT that just like are dedicated to pumping up propaganda. Um, and so it can be difficult to, to find institutions to trust. And if you're not in journalism, like for me, I actually just follow people that I know, you know, personally, that I've spent, you know, days worth of hours with. And I know that this is a person who's not going to lie about something. If I'm reading something by them, even if it's not something that's pleasant, I'll give you a good example of this. T.M. Gibbons Neff, who writes for the New York Times. I've hung out with him several times. I don't know, many times even. Um, I haven't seen him in a few years now, I guess, but he was sending out reports from Afghanistan that were essentially detailing the, the, the collapse of the Afghan um, government and the Afghan military. And I didn't like them. And I told him so. And I also told him that I really appreciated that he was over there reporting on that. And even though I didn't like it, like I was glad because I knew that he, he's not a liar. He's not going to lie about something like that. It's important to have people that you trust out there talking about things that that you can validate or verify. I would also say I'd take that a step further and say that, um, you know, because some people say like, well, you know, you should have, uh, why aren't we, why don't we have more Afghan voices in the news? That's a valid point. You know, you should have Afghans covering Afghanistan up to a certain point, but I also want an American covering Afghanistan. Who's going to be a little one. more objective. Yeah. Who's going to be a little bit more objective. One, Maybe. most importantly, yeah. but two also like I'm an American. So like, care about Afghanistan yeah. from an American perspective. perspective. I don't not care about it, 
but my priorities are not the priorities of an Afghan. And so I think like there's, you know, that maybe is the answer to a certain extent to some of this stuff where it's, where it's like you find people that you can follow and trust in the media, names, individuals, and, you know, follow them closely. And over time, you'll develop either a relationship with them in terms of the, the, the writing, and you'll see that it's mostly correct, and you'll learn to trust them. Or if you can develop a personal relationship, develop a personal relationship with them. Either way, the, the, that is the best and probably only way to replace being in a place yourself. Because you and I know, we're here in Ukraine. We know that there is no oppression of Russian speakers. That's a fiction. That's like, an absurd fiction. Total fiction, yes. you know? Yes. And yet that's something that really is. The only oppression people. on Russian speakers here is when I attempt to speak Russian to them. Right, right. That's, that's the That impression. is an insult right. to them, but yes. I'm trying my best. But yes, continue. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so, like, with a lot, a lot of this stuff that's really... I mean, this, this, this tracks for the United States, too, you know? Like, all of these abstractions... Oh, it's uh, Donald Trump said this, but the media mischaracterized him. Oh, Joe Joe Brandon did this, but the media mischaracterized him. Whether you're on the left or the right, you're moderate, whatever, you know, it, there, there's a lot of this garbage out there. And so Putin putting the propaganda out that he does is just trying to connect again opportunistically right. with anything that will get traction, that will cause confusion, and subvert Western support for Ukraine and will isolate Ukraine. The best way that the USSR and then Russia had for isolating Ukraine for decades, for years, the moneymaker was the Nazis. Because you heard Nazi and you said, Ukrainians are Nazis? Shit, I don't like them. Right. You didn't need to know any more. And, right. you know, a lot of people, there were a lot of people in the West, pro-communist, pro pro-Soviet, who said, hey, the USSR is saying these guys are Nazis, guys. They're probably Nazis. They were seen, they were viewed as a credible source of this right. information. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, I didn't know a whole lot about Ukraine prior to coming over, which is a shame. I've said it a million times. Like, boy, did I miss out. Like, I've traveled Europe. I really wish I had to put Ukraine on that travel list. This place yeah. is incredible, and its history is incredible, and its people are incredible. Um, but Russia, like, I have always been dismissive of anything Russia says just because I know the, you know, the way that he operates the state media. But... You know, the Nazi thing, um, I guess somehow I just I must have had my head in the sand. I didn't hear the Nazi thing until this invasion. I did not realize that's something that he's been kind of laying the groundwork for, I guess. So that's a bit of a go-to. So really quickly, it's not just him. The, there's this, it's not, it, it's a lie in the sense of it is a distortion of the truth, although it depends on grain of, on, on certain truths. But there is, there, there's sort of a triangle of accounts of Eastern European anti-Semitism and collaboration with the Nazis that comes from people who experienced the Holocaust and saw Ukrainian prison guards or Polish prison guards or were mistreated horribly by Ukrainian partisans or Polish partisans or Belarusian partisans. Um, and, and that's one set of narratives, which is true. There's the German set of narratives. And if you watch any German movie, about World War II that covers Ukraine or Poland, you will see in it uh, Polish partisans and Ukrainian partisans who are horribly anti-Semitic. And the Germans who are in the Wehrmacht, they're just there because they're patriots. And they're not actually <laughs> that anti-Semitic. Actually, they have Jewish friends. Yeah. So it's really, they were the bad ones. The SS, uh -huh. the Germans in the, the leather coats who were perverts, plus the you know Ukrainians and the Poles, like they're the real anti-Semites. And then you've got this... <laughs> 
It's another all clear. We're still good. <laughs> and then you've got the USSR version. So there are these different, like, it's convenient for everybody who isn't Polish or Ukrainian to say, these are the ones who are really responsible right. for World War II. But who is really responsible for the Holocaust in World War II? Well, fucking the Nazi Germans. Right. And you know, to a certain extent, the USSR, who allied with Nazi Germany in 1939. I was going to say, that's the, the other piece of, that's the other piece of irony to all of this, is that if anybody is more in bed uh, with the Nazi uh, ideology, it would be over to the east, not, yeah. not Ukraine. Um, all right, so that was a fun little rabbit trail. So back to present day. Um, they invade, they don't get Kiev, and they get stonewalled essentially in the east. Um they haven't really gained anything in about five or six months, whereas Ukraine has taken back thousands of square miles, or over here kilometers, um, of land back. They're making a lot of progress. Putin is getting it from both sides. He's got the people in his administration who are extreme nationalists and want him to win this war, and he's got his people who are not happy with the fact that their funds are being restricted and the whole West is against them. And he's got to try and appease them. We will end with the million-dollar question. What does Adrian Bonnenberger think? Is Putin's move, or could what could he do to save face? Can he save face at this point? I think the only way that Putin can save face, and it is realistic, is what we've just been talking about, which is that this war is an abstraction to Russians. Ukrainians aren't hitting Russian electrical plants. Ukrainians aren't burning Ukrainian, uh, Russian villages or Russian cities. Um, this is an abstraction to most Russians, and most Russians probably don't give a shit about it in the same way that most Americans didn't give a shit about Iraq or Afghanistan. And all Putin really has to do right now, as most of the people in the military are conscripts from the Far East or places that people in Moscow and St. Petersburg, real Russians, as Putin and his cronies would consider them, right. Um, you know, it, it hasn't affected them much. So what he could do is he could just say, uh, you know, I've denazified Ukraine. I've taught NATO and the U.S. a lesson. They're never going to fucking, you know, I, I, I burned 30% of Ukraine to the ground and I've done what I needed to do and now we're going home and I'm declaring victory. And there's actually a historical precedent for this. Like uh, people will say, well, this will be too humiliating for Putin. He's never going to recover from this. Firstly, he's got tons of propaganda. It would be easier for him to say this and just tell his cronies, look, just declare victory. I'm fucking done with this. I want to get back to business. You know, Europe and America will be happy to go back to business with Russia, first of all. But secondly, the historical precedent, precedent um, there are a lot of historical precedents. My favorite, pound for pound, is the Battle of Kamdesh between the uh, Egyptian Empire and the Hittites. And that was uh, Ramses II, also known as Ramses the Great, the guy who built the largest pyramid. He went up to, uh, uh, to, to uh, Syria to, to punish the Hittite king and got fucking washed by the Hittites. They, they wrecked his shit to the point where like the end of the battle, he managed to preserve like some portion of his military and withdraw. And what did he do? He put up a bunch of steels. He put up a bunch of these like monuments saying that he kicked the shit out of the Hittites. Yeah. His people didn't know. His people yeah. didn't care. You and know? what's crazy is you would say in 2022, you can't get away with that. But look what he gets you away with. with his probably can get away like with they, that. In Russia, I think a large 
part of these people believe every word he says. Dude, and that's yeah. his, I'm convinced that is his off ramp. He doesn't need to yeah. nuke the place. No, I agree. He doesn't need to do all this shit. Dude, just go fucking home. Tell your people that you won. Nobody's going to. Hell, half the West will shit. probably believe it. Half like, the yeah, West, we, totally. we, we, we tore it up in the East. We denazified it. They're good. Totally. My only concern is, you know, if he does surrender Crimea and the East, which is the end all be all for Zelensky as it stands right now, according to him. Um, it might be a little harder to sell, but I do agree that that's about the only way um, that he gets out of this with his dignity intact, however fake that might be. That's that's how I'm I'm choosing to positively imagine that like yeah. somehow he has a Scrooge moment. Somebody tells him, dude, like just everybody wants your shit. So go back to selling your shit to the rest of the world. Probably there isn't going to be, uh, you know, reparations to Ukraine. That's okay. The West was going to be able to rebuild like a million times better than Russia would be able to anyway. Yeah. So Russia basically go fuck yourselves, leave Ukraine, leave the sovereign territory. Declare victory. Declare Which he's victory. already done. He's already claimed victories he hasn't had in this war. So. Several times. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I'm really glad that we got to finally meet in person. And I uh, hope it happens again soon. Same. All right. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this, please click like, comment below, subscribe. Let us know that we have your support. It means the world to us. And we hope that more people can have their eyes open to what is actually happening in this country by talking to the people who are living through it. Thanks again and have a great day.